Turning your Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14. I'd like to ask you to remember my brother Mark uh, in your prayers. He is scheduled to have a heart uh, catheterization this coming Friday, so we would appreciate your prayers for, for my brother Mark. 1 Kings chapter 14 and Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, there's much here um, that we need to see today. And the only way that we can see it is if your spirit guides us and shows us the things of Christ that we need to see. And so we pray that we would allow him to be our teacher today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday morning, we came to this chapter to consider a question that is an example, an Old Testament example of how the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. How it divides uh, how it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The occasion of this question begins in verse 1 with the sickness of Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, the king of Israel. And so Jeroboam, as we see in verse 2, tells his wife, Arise, I pray thee, and disguise thyself, that thou be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam, and get thee to Shiloh, behold, there is Ahijah, the prophet, which told me that I should be king over his people. Look back for just a minute to 1 Kings chapter 11, if you will. 1 Kings chapter 11, and look at verse 29. And it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him in the way, and he had clad himself with a new garment, and they too were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give ten tribes to thee. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake. That is, one tribe in addition to David's tribe of Judah. And that tribe, of course, is Benjamin. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me. They have forsaken me. And they've worshipped all of these other gods that are listed there. And so the word of the Lord comes to Ahijah the prophet. And it is given to Jeremiah. And exactly what the Lord told Ahijah to tell um, Jeroboam came to pass. Jeroboam became the king of the northern ten tribes and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, 
became the king of the southern two tribes. This is why Jeroboam sends his wife to Ahijah because he's the prophet that told him that he should be king of Israel. Now that is Jeroboam's perception of it. And we see in his words something of the hardness of heart of this man. In verse 31, notice who it is that is giving Jeroboam the message. It's not Ahijah. He's just the spokesman. He's just the human instrument. Uh, The prophecy is from the Lord. Notice those words there. Ahijah said, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel. That's who's telling Jeroboam that he's going to be king over this people. Now look back at chapter 14 in verse 2, where Jeroboam tells his wife to go see Ahijah because he's the one who told me that I should be king over this people. Jeroboam will not acknowledge that it was the Lord who told him that he would be king over his people. Jeroboam heard the message from heaven, but he received it as the word of men not as it is in truth, the word of God. How are you receiving the message from heaven today? Are you receiving it as the word of men that you can dismiss? Or are you receiving it as it is in truth, the word of God? Jeroboam received it as the word of men. And so he sends his wife to that man, Ahijah. And he sends her disguised because he doesn't want uh, Ahijah to know she is his wife. He thinks somehow that if Ahijah doesn't know who she is, then it will affect the message. And he'll prophesy good concerning uh, his child who is sick. But folks, the message from heaven is without partiality. It's without respect to persons. There is no respect to persons with God. The the message from heaven isn't based on who we are. It's based on what we are. Sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God hath concluded all under sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that message is the same. It's the same to the king. It's the same to the king's wife. It's the same to the poorest of the poor and everyone in between. There is no difference. So Jeroboam's wife disguises herself and goes to Ahijah. But her disguise doesn't work because thou God seest me. Thou God seest me. Her disguise doesn't work because neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so the Lord exposes Jeroboam's wife to Ahijah in verse 5. And then in verse 6, we have that piercing question that discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? Jeroboam's wife says nothing. 
And I don't believe it's because Ahijah doesn't give her a chance to speak. It's that she has no answer to that question. And notice that there is no mention here that she acknowledged her disguise. No mention that she removed her disguise. That the the indication being that she would not give it up. How many people here this morning will not give up their disguise? The Spirit of God confronts each of us with this question. How many lost people will not stop feigning themselves to be Christians? How many believers will not stop feigning themselves to be living for and serving the Lord when confronted with this question? This question that cuts right to our heart. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? How many will not give up their disguise but continue in their own way, doing their own will? Why feignest thou thyself to be another? Jeroboam's wife has no answer to that question. And neither do we. Not now. And not when we stand before the Lord one day. Because then every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth will be stopped. And all the world will become guilty before God. And so beginning here in verse 7, Uh, of chapter 14, Ahijah gives the heavy tidings of judgment that God has pronounced upon Jeroboam. And God pronounces judgment upon this man and upon his house because in the face of the message from heaven, Jeroboam rebelled. He wanted nothing to do with it. We talked last week about an example of Jeroboam's rebellion in uh, 1 Kings chapter 13. 13 in the Bible is the number of rebellion. And in this chapter, Jeroboam is confronted with the message from heaven by this man of God who is sent by the Lord to confront him about his faults and pagan religion and his altar. And Jeroboam heard the message and his reaction for it was to lay hold on the man of God, not humble himself but to lay hold, to try to kill the messenger. He put forth his hand against this servant of the Lord, and his hand dried up. And the altar was rent, and the ashes poured forth, just as the man of God who spoke by the word of the Lord said it would. Jeroboam wanted the man of God immediately to entreat the Lord for him, that his hand might be restored. Jeroboam would not entreat the Lord. Jeroboam would not uh, cry out to God for mercy. This is the hardness, these little examples of the hardness of this man's heart. So the man of God did beseech the Lord for Jeroboam, and his hand was restored. But all of these things in chapter 13 had no effect upon Jeroboam. Because what we see in verse 33 of this chapter, after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priest of the high places. As we say today, he doubled down 
on his sin and rebellion. This is what the opening words of verse 1 of chapter 14 refer to at that time. At that time, after these things, his son is sick. But you see, chapter 13 is not the beginning of Jeroboam's rebellion against God. We mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, as we come here, Israel is no longer a unified nation. They are a divided nation, divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom made up of ten tribes with Jeroboam as the king and the, the southern kingdom made up of two tribes with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, as king. And one of the things that makes Jeroboam's life so relevant to our day is what Jeroboam did when he became king of Israel. As we go back and and look at uh, the beginning of his rebellion, the Lord had made Jeroboam king over these ten tribes because Solomon and Israel had forsaken the Lord. They had turned to idolatry. And so the Lord told Jeroboam right from the outset, through Ahijah, back in chapter 11. And it shall be, if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and wilt walk in my ways, and do that which is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel unto thee. And it's instructive to notice as we look at Jeroboam's words here in chapter 14 and verse 2, all he got out of God's message to him, all that he heard was that he would be king. He would be king. And so from the moment that Jeroboam became king, he rebelled against the word of the Lord. He took his place as the king not only of his own heart, but as the king of Israel. And his rebellion was particularly abhorrent because immediately he did exactly what Solomon had done. He comes up with other gods to be worshipped. In fact, Jeroboam established a counterfeit religion. And when you go back and look at what he established... It was a religion that was a reasonable alternative to the truth. He established a religion that had a form of godliness. His religion had priests and altars and feasts and sacrifices and worship on particular days, just like God had established with the children of Israel. There's two things that stand out about this religion that Jeroboam established. If you look back at chapter 12 for just a minute, 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 33. So he, Jeroboam, offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the 8th month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Jeroboam devised a God of his own making. 
He devised a God to his own liking. He did what we read in Psalm 50 and verse 21. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Jeroboam created a religion and a God that was a reflection of himself. In verse 28, he made these two golden calves. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Two bloodless calves. Folks, God doesn't have two golden calves. He has one singular lamb. A lamb bloody and marred by our sins. And so bloody and so marred that Isaiah says there is no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing golden and beautiful to the natural man about the cross of Calvary. We sing the song, the old rugged cross, and we sing how the cross was a place of suffering and shame. It was a place of agony and blood, as John Newton wrote about it. The blood of God himself. That's what it took to save sinners like me and you. That's how hopeless, that's how wicked we are. Calvary was a place of agony and blood, no beauty there. God's lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ, bloodied and marred and slain for sinners on the cross of Calvary. He's God's continual burnt offering that we read about in in the Old Testament, in the books of Exodus and Numbers. But it's not just in the Old Testament that he's God's continual burnt offering. In Revelation chapter 5, as John looks at that scene in heaven, what does he see? Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. It's still the cross. It's still the blood. And it will be for all eternity. But Jeroboam rejected that message and substituted for the lamb these two golden calves that I'm sure were beautiful to look at. Not a hint of blood there. It's interesting that we read in verse 32 and 33 here in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12 that Jeroboam offered upon the altar. He sacrificed unto these calves, but there's no mention of what he offered, what he sacrificed. I believe it was the same kind of offering that Cain brought to the Lord, a bloodless offering. Jeroboam's golden calves are beautiful to look at, and they're appealing because the reflection that would be seen in these calves was the image, the reflection of the image of the worshipers. This is the first thing that stands out about Jeroboam's reasonable alternative to the truth. Provided a way for the worshipers to have a God that was altogether such and one as themselves. The second thing that stands out about it is that It was a convenient religion. 
Look at chapter 12 and verse 28. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other put he in Dan. Jeroboam didn't want worship to be too much on people. And so he he established a church, if you will, with two convenient locations. The religion of Jeroboam is alive and well in America today. And it goes by the name of Christianity. And the two hallmarks of Christianity in this hour are the same two hallmarks that we see in Jeroboam's religion here. Christianity today is all about another Jesus, a bloodless Jesus. A Jesus who is the image of the worshipers themselves. A Jesus who people think is altogether such an one as themselves. The other hallmark of Christianity today is convenience. Convenience. Churches who do not want their services to be too much for people. First and foremost, they don't want their services to be too much when it comes to the preaching of the Word of God. It's like that because we're living in the time that Paul prophesied of in in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. The time, he said, when they will not endure sound doctrine. The time when sound doctrine will be too much. And so people will seek convenience. And one of the ways that they'll do that is they will heap to themselves teachers. They'll have itching ears. They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny the power thereof. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth. And they'll be turned unto fables. Churches don't want their services to be too much for people. People have things to do. People have places to go. And the last thing that they need is a church and church services that would be too much for them, that would interfere too much in their lives. On Sunday night, for example, don't want to miss the football and basketball games. Be interesting next Sunday night to see how many churches who will not open their doors to preach the Word of God will open their doors to have a Super Bowl party. Or how about on Wednesday night? Don't want that to be too much interference in the lives of people. Because on Wednesday night, you know, we and our children are out playing the games. Playing the games that we watch on Sunday afternoon and Sunday night. In the face of the word of God that says bodily exercise profiteth little. But godliness is profitable in all things. In all things. It applies to this life and in the life to come. It's worth noting that In Exodus chapter 32, we have the first golden calf 
believe this mentioned in the Bible. And it was made by the people of God. And in Exodus 32 and verse 6, their worship is described this way. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That is Christianity in America. Churches with convenient locations, churches with convenient service times, churches with multiple types of services. Oh, there's the contemporary service where the music is nothing less than the rock music of the world under the guise of praise and worship. You know, we criticize the Democrats for misnaming their bills, like uh, the Inflation Reduction Act or the Defense of Marriage Act. Christians aren't much better, are they? Rock music, rock concerts, and calling it praise and worship. They're services that appeal to the younger generation, supposedly. Services that have no preaching because this younger generation doesn't like to be preached to. They're not going to endure that. And after all, we've got to do something to keep our young people in church. So we'll compromise the message of the Word of God. Then there's the traditional services with more traditional music and some watered-down preaching that takes its text from one of these modern versions of the Bible that have been added to and taken away from the Word of God until they're nothing more than the hiss of the serpent that says today exactly what he said in the garden. Yea, hath God said. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Word of God. That's His name. The Apostle John tells us in John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he tells us in Revelation 19 and verse 13 that His name, the Lord Jesus, is called the Word of God. And since there's another Jesus a Jesus that is to man's liking, then there is also another word of God that's to man's liking. That converts the heavy tidings of the message from heaven into something that's more tolerable. You're seeing both in the churches of our day. Another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, but a tolerant, non-judgmental Jesus. A Jesus who only has one emotion, and that emotion is love. Folks, God is a God of love, but he's equally a God of wrath. It's been correctly observed that the only aspect of God's character the world still believes in is his love. His holiness, his sovereignty, his wrath are often rejected as being incompatible with a loving God. This is the other Jesus. A loving God who would never hate. A loving God who would never pour out his wrath. 
But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Pastor Kelly taught us that the wrath of God rests both on the sin and the sinner. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 proves that. That verse says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is ungodliness and unrighteousness? It's sin. And so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all sin, against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness. But where does that ungodliness and unrighteousness reside? Is it out here running around by itself? What is the source? What is the manifestation of it? Well, if we keep reading in that verse... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Of men. That's the source. That's where the ungodliness and unrighteousness resides in men, in sinners who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sin and sinner. The wrath of God rests on both. Because sin and sinner cannot be separated. This is the message of God's bloody lamb who was marred by our sins and for our sins on the cross of Calvary. The cross is right in the middle of Romans 1.18 because that's where the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But instead of being revealed against men who deserve it, it was revealed and poured out on the man Christ Jesus, the one who did not deserve it. When he was made sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The cross is the message of the love of God. The message that God commended his love toward us, not, not because of any worthiness or loveliness in us. God commended that love toward us while we were yet sinners because of the worthiness and the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is altogether lovely in the sight of God. The one who took our place on the cross of Calvary. This is the message of the love of God that needs to be preached so that we can see ourselves for what we are. Sinners who are worthy of nothing but death. Worthy of nothing but the judgment of God in the lake of fire for all eternity. We don't need to be looking into these golden calves to see our own reflection. We need to look at the cross And all we'll see there is what we are and what we deserve. What we'll see there is our iniquity, our sin, our rebellion laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead of that message, what we have in this country are the golden calves. Where people can look, see themselves as their own God, see themselves as their own Savior. That's the Jesus that's being preached today. And to go along with another Jesus is another word of God. 
all these modern virgin, virgins who, who's based on the work of West Cotton Hort, two lost men, two apostates, two under, uh, unbelievers whose purpose was to attack and undermine the word of God, the King James Bible. These are the two golden calves of American Christianity. Another Jesus, another word of God. And they give rise to these other little golden calves. The golden calves of convenience. The golden calves of contemporary music and contemporary services. All to the end to keep the message of this book from being too much for people. It brings before our minds this question back in chapter 14 and verse 6. It's a question that applies not only to individuals, but to churches. It applies to this church age. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? Why feignest thou thyself to be another? That's what the Lord said would be the condition of the church of this age. He said in Revelation chapter 3, that the church of the Laodiceans would feign themselves to be another. He said they would feign themselves to be rich and increased with goods, having need of nothing. But underneath that disguise, God reveals the real condition of the church of the 21st century. The way that God sees the church of the last days, wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. This is the religion that Jeroboam founded in Israel. And it's alive and well in this country. This is why God pronounces judgment on Jeroboam and his house. Look back at chapter 14, if you will, and look at verse 9. God says to Jeroboam, You've done evil above, above all that were before thee. For thou hast gone and made thee other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and hast cast me behind thy back. Cast me behind thy back. That's why the Lord Jesus is seen in Revelation chapter 3 is outside the church of the Laodiceans, outside the, the final church of this church age. This church has cast him behind thy back. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it be all gone. And that is exactly what happened. Look over at chapter 15 and verse 25. And Nadab the son of Jeroboam began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa king of Judah and reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. 
And Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha smote him at Gibbethon, Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Even in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, did Baasha slay him, slayed Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, and reigned in his stead. And notice verse 29. And it came to pass when he reigned that he smote all the house of Jeroboam. He left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he had destroyed him according unto the saying of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. There's something here we don't want to miss. We read about the judgment of God, but I'll tell you a good policy when you read about the judgment of God here in, the, in, in this book is to back up and see the years of mercy that preceded that judgment. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago from 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3. God gave Jeroboam and his house space to repent. At least 24 years. Jeroboam was king of Israel for 22 years. His son was king for two years. He gave them at least 24 years to repent and turn to him. But they wouldn't. They clung to their false religion. And they reaped the wrath of God. How about you? How about you? Do you know the Lord today? How many years has he been dealing with you? Do you have the religion of the golden calves? Or the truth of the singular bloody lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was wounded and marred for you because he bore your sin in his body on the tree. This morning, right where you are, you can believe the truth. You can lay down your rebellion and you can give up the golden calves of your own religion. And you can turn from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him to be your Savior. Our Father, we thank you for these moments when we can consider these things together. The heavy tidings from your word, the heavy tidings of the judgment of God, and yet the heavy tidings that the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself there on the cross of Calvary. We pray that you would speak to the hearts of any who are lost here today, that right now, in this moment, they would trust you as their Savior. And Father, for those of us who know you, we pray that we would be people who are grateful and thankful, people who... Because of your love, people who do not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.